I want to thank everyone for a, just a great weekend. And I know that a great deal of work has gone into making this possible, taking care of so many visitors and attendees, a great lunch, even better company and visiting. And I'm grateful. I know that Lee is as well to be able to spend time here together with all of you. I've had a chance over the last uh, number of weeks to be able to talk where I preach uh, near our home now to talk about what I believe are some real blessings of Christianity to the world. Now, a person might stop and think, well, to, to discuss the blessings of Christianity is almost just self-evident, right? I mean, we talk about the cross, we talk about the work of Jesus, about God blessing humanity and all of that. And of course, that is important, and I don't mean to minimize that at all. But among critics who look at Christianity and like to speak ill of it, however they conceive of the label and the phenomenon of Christianity, it's very easy for many to poke fun or to belittle or to act as if in some way Christianity is a problem, not a solution. But I challenge that not only by pointing to the cross, but also looking to what it is that Christianity advocates and what it promotes. And in the final analysis... A reasonable assessment has to say that Christianity brings to the world the greatest of all possible blessings. Sometimes they're the obvious elements, sometimes they're ones that may be a little less immediately obvious, but after a bit of reflection become just as apparent as the others. This lesson is what I believe is one of those others, the ones not necessarily immediately visible, but just as real and just as deserving as inattention as the others. When we speak about being the people of God, the Bible uses the words of pilgrimage and journey frequently. It suggests that we are not at our destination. This is not what we are created or designed for. There is a path that we are treading towards a goal that we are longing to arrive at. And Christianity encourages us to be the best versions of ourselves in imitation of Jesus as we walk this road together. Christianity implores us, the participants and the recipients of blessing, to be a positive force, an encouraging force in the lives of other people who are also looking for meaning in life and for a purpose, a direction, and an end that makes sense. It says that Christians have something to offer simply by means of being human alongside all of the others of the human race. This afternoon, I want to highlight just a few of the ways that you and I can bless others by being cognizant of our shared humanity, but also the sense of purpose that God has granted that hopefully every person would recognize and operate upon. For example... A couple of years ago, I was asked, Lee and I were asked, in fact, to go be a part of a student retreat there in western Tennessee. One of the student social clubs had, uh, had scheduled a retreat for that spring, and they'd asked if we would come and if I would speak for them at one of the sessions during that time. It was a great event. We were privileged to get to go and to spend time with these, these young persons who 70 or 80 or 100 of them had set aside a weekend just to focus on spiritual things and, and, sh- and fellowship and camaraderie. Well, I was still fairly new to them, and um, so as I got up, I talked a little bit about just my background, just for some comparisons that I brought out in the lesson. 
But one of the things that I brought out was that, you know, I have a background in science and engineering. I don't work in that area. Probably much of it is uh, rusty or gone from my brain. But I do know that the things that I learned in science and the ways that we study and talk about the natural world are not hostile to Christianity. To this group of students, you know, many of whom are different disciplines and majors, they will go on to work in different fields. I just talked about the fact that I didn't want them to be discouraged when they encountered people who criticized the Christian faith. I encouraged them to be confident as God's people and to walk this journey and not allow people and pressure criticism to knock them off course or off path. And I used my science background just to talk about that. By the time that lesson was done and we were just milling around and visiting, I had a few different people to visit with, but one young lady in particular came up and she said, let me ask you something. Do you really believe that? And I said, well, I do. And the things that I've learned in science, the things that I learned about Christianity and so forth, they're not, they're not incompatible. In fact, God created the world that we know and we, we study. And she simply said, I am so grateful to hear that because she was about to go off to medical school. She was going to study the human body. She was going to do it. And she said she was just a little worried and maybe potentially intimidated by what she might find in common attitudes when she got out into medical school and to studies. So I hope that it was a help to her. I didn't necessarily solve all of her problems. But if I'm just one more voice that says knowledge is power, knowledge says this is the right path, then maybe that was a positive contribution for her and for the others that day. In our Bibles, in Matthew chapter 26, the Bible talks about Peter as he came into contact with others who were critical or questioning his commitment to following Jesus. In Matthew 26, Jesus had been arrested. He was already being interrogated by Jewish leaders. Peter had followed at a bit of a distance, kept an eye on, and of course Jesus knew where Peter was. But while he was there, over this course of time, there were three times that he was asked, or the remark was made, you're with Jesus, weren't you? And you may know well that he increasingly, with increasing vigor, denies any connection to Jesus. We sometimes call those Peter's three denials before the rooster crowed. When the crowing happened, Jesus turned and immediately made eye contact with Peter, who realized what he had just done, despite his protestations earlier, and he wept. It is interesting to me that when we get later in Peter's careers, in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, he writes there to his recipients, fellow Christians, and he says to sanctify the Lord God in your heart, And among other things, he said, always be willing to give an answer to those who ask you about Christianity with meekness and fear and, you know, a proper attitude. But he said, be ready to be answering. When I first learned that verse, became aware of it as an adult processing its significance, I I kind of envisioned being around the water cooler, you know, in in the office. and, And somebody comes up, hey, I hear you go to church and you're a Christian. And I got some questions. I wanted to ask you, what do you think about this? Okay, that is great. If people do that, we want to be able to have a meaningful conversation. No problem. But then I got to looking at the larger context of that in 1 Peter 3, and I'm I'm not sure that hits exactly on what Peter had in mind. It would be covered by it, but I think he had more. Because if you read in the preceding verses, he speaks about people being hostile towards Christians. He speaks about people treating Christians poorly because they are members of the Lord's church. 
And so this is his preemptive strike where he encourages people to mentally fortify themselves so that when the challenges come, when critics step up and say, I cannot believe that you fall for that, that we have a meaningful, helpful, not snarky, helpful response to offer that might prompt reconsideration, a deeper conversation, maybe something that would be advantageous. That, I think, is the purpose. And I really wonder if Peter pens those words, trying to encourage his readers, and a part of his mind flips back in time to Matthew 26, where he remembers he was caught flat-footed. I think that he was ill-prepared, mentally unprepared, for the challenges, you know, these people and the, the possible threats. His master is over here being, you know, ridiculed and even beaten. And he was caught unprepared to say something meaningful. Have you ever thought about those three separate times of denial as missed opportunities of evangelism? I think of it that way. There were three opportunities in Matthew chapter 26, in the end of that chapter, where Peter had the opportunity to be evangelistic. I like the topic that you have selected for next year, Arise and Evangelize. It's fabulous. And I wonder if Peter looked back and he thought, boy, I wish that I'd been ready to say something different like Yes, I am a disciple of Jesus, and you need to be too. The lost opportunity of evangelism. The reason I mention this is because we want to encourage one another to recognize it is not a mistake to be a member of the Lord's family. In a very skeptical 21st century world where it's fashionable to make criticisms of Christianity, apparently no other religions, but Christianity is prime targeting, We ought to encourage each other. I would like to encourage our teenagers and our 20-somethings and beyond. Uh, I've looked at a lot of data. I've looked at a lot of information. I have heard criticisms, and I have heard words of support. And I just have to tell you that you are not making a mistake intellectually, morally, spiritually. You are not making a mistake by becoming a Christian. You are making the best decision and the most educated and well-informed decision that you'll ever make. All I would say is don't ever give that up because the criticisms that are coming are usually ill-informed, ill-considered, and they're ill-intended often. And you stand on solid ground. We would call it terra firma. You're on solid ground being a Christian. We encourage one another. Early Christians had a sense of solidarity, usually, not always, but usually a sense of solidarity where they would support one another in the Christian journey, despite living in a world that was largely hostile to Christianity. They were absolutely counter-cultural. So we want to be supportive of of each other. To our young people, what a great decision to love Jesus and want to be a follower of God. To our older persons, even if you've become a Christian recently, you've made the very best decision. No one ever gets to the end of their life and looks back and says, wow, I totally blew it by becoming a Christian. How horrible. Nobody's ever going to stand in front of Jesus and think, wow, this was a waste. Instead, at that point, people are going to look back and say, I wish I had chosen differently before. There is a name in the book of 2 Timothy that is not often cited, but you may be aware of it, perhaps. It is the name Onesiphorus. Now, I've often thought, just by the basic description of Onesiphorus we're about to examine, that Onesiphorus is a person whom we could really appreciate. In fact, you may think, if you're about to have a child, you have a little boy coming, Onesiphorus would be a fine name to give to that little boy. Just be ready for your mom to say, really? Okay. 
If you look in 2 Timothy chapter 1, here is why in just a snippet, I have appreciation for him. The book of 2 Timothy is written, it is believed, when Paul had been arrested, and this time really under the threat of death, and he would lose his life, apparently, as a Christian, for Christianity. His circumstances were very bleak. He was in a dungeon, apparently, or the equivalent thereof. And when he felt alone, it was Onesiphorus that he mentioned as someone who really picked his spirits up. You can see the words here in first, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse number 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. If you then flip to the last chapter of this book, Paul tells us a little bit more about his own circumstances. When he speaks in verse number 16 of chapter 4, and he says, At my first offense, no one, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me, and he strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the nations might hear it. And then if you go to the latter part, in verse number 19, he requests to Timothy, greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. I suspect that when he went, Onesiphorus could not have anticipated we would talk about him 2,000 years after the fact. I am sure that he understood that he was going where many others would not, but he was determined to find Paul and then to go in despite what others thought and see him and encourage him. I believe Christianity offers such a tremendous blessing to the world because in it is this encouragement to solidarity, to stay on the path that is really our path to victory. We are not to be shrinking violets or lilies. We are not to become wallflowers. We are, we are not to capitulate or give in just because someone has a crossword or a, a critical thought. It is about knowing internally that where we stand is right and then being vocal enough to encourage and to support someone for their decision, to remind them that it's really heaven whom we want to look upon us with favor and satisfaction. And it may not be pleasant, but I'm willing to accept the criticisms of the people who are around me in the world. What I would hope is that they would revise their opinion. And the moment of criticism is a moment to give up or a moment to evangelize. What can we do as Christians as we walk through life and our journey towards heaven is we can be supportive and encouraging and reminding people this is the right decision to make. If people are treated poorly, there's another thing that we can do that may piggyback right onto that. And it has to do with the ability to suffer alongside of other people. It is the expression of compassion. You may have heard of a poet whose name is Ella Wheeler Wilcox. She was born in 1850 and from a very, very young age began to write poetry, so much so that by the time she was in her late 20s to 30s, she was really quite widely known. On one occasion, she was invited to come to the governor's inaugural ball in Wisconsin. And so she gets on the train and she's riding there. She's invited as a poet, you know, something similar to a poet laureate. 
On the way there, she's riding in a train and she reports that sitting across from her was a young woman who was dressed all in black and weeping. And while they were sitting there making this journey together, Ella went over and sat beside her, put her arm around her and and tried to comfort her, didn't know her from Eve or Adam, tried to be something of a support. It was a distressing moment for her and certainly for the other woman. By the time she arrived at her destination, got there to the facility where the ball was going to be held, she was back in a room where she could prep herself and you know, freshen up from her journey. But she reported she was so distraught and affected by sitting next to this person who was suffering that she looked into the mirror and was immediately moved. You know, who am I? And here's this person so sad. And she began to pen what would be the opening lines of her most famous poem. It is entitled, Solitude. You may recognize the opening lines, but the rest of it is worth reading as well. Just a snippet. She wrote, laugh and the world laughs with you. Weep and you weep alone. For the sad old earth must borrow its mirth, but has trouble enough of its own. Sing and the hills will answer. Sigh. It is lost on the air. The echoes bound to a joyful sound, but shrink from voicing care. Such were her opening thoughts at seeing this person sitting and hurting alone. It reminds me of the words from Romans 12, verse 15, where Paul, by inspiration, writes that we are to rejoice with those who are celebrating. We can, we can, we can say, yes, wonderful, and you know, give a pump with a fist. But the Bible there also says that we're going to weep with the people who are weeping. What it says is that Christians bless the world by being encouraged to have a heart that is large enough to be moved by the circumstances that another person is experiencing. And we love the celebrations. We need to love the moments, not the events themselves, but the opportunities to be supportive of persons who hurt. The very word itself, compassion, means calm with passion. Not love, although that is an emotion, but in this case, the suffering that another person is experiencing. A synonym for us in English from different roots is sympathy, which the sim part means with, like calm. And pathy is related to passion. It is literally the ability to hurt when someone else is hurting. And it's not confined just to our family members or friends. It should mean that we have a large enough heart to be moved by the sufferings or challenges that people around us experience, even if we don't know them. You know what? That's my fellow human being. If we need an example, Jesus gives one himself. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38, It is one of my favorite, succinct descriptions of Jesus. The Bible says that he looked out and he saw the people. They're gathered around. He's got his apostles, disciples there with him. And he sees all of these people. And they're they're able to go about their regular business of life and things like that. But apparently, a sense of purpose and direction and what's this all about? How do we handle the hilltops and as well as the, the valleys, you know, the highs and the lows? And the Bible says that Jesus looked out and he was moved with shared sufferings, compassion. Because he saw the people were like sheep having no shepherd. He's in the middle of a religious nation 
But that doesn't mean that people had a sense of where to go, how to handle life with its ups and its downs, or whatever other elements it has. And so he prompts his apostles there, and he says, I'll tell you what, let's pray for them, but not directly so. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say, let's pray for them that they'll have answers. What he says is, let's pray that there are figures who will come into their lives uh, who will be able to give direction and encouragement and support so that they don't wander around lost, I don't know, at, at odds or at risk or suffering. What he prayed for was that there would be people who could help those who were struggling and would have hearts big enough to do so because of sympathy and compassion. I know that we're down the road in time a little bit, and you may not be a full-time evangelist or something like that, but, you know, if you're a Christian, you're human, I'm human, I have the ability to enact some of what Jesus is talking about, to be able to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, to try and help say, if you're looking for direction, I, I know a guy, and he can bless you too. To be able to move, be moved by others to that degree suggests that we are interested in them enough to care, human enough that it matters, humble enough to know that we're not the answer, but we know where it can be found. It helped me. It can help you. Whether the world recognizes it or not, that is a tremendous blessing that Christianity instills, it inculcates, it encourages among all of its practitioners to be thoughtful and compassionate. And I'll close with this one. Companionship. Companionship. You may have heard of Helen Keller. I've known her name since I was a young person, and maybe you read or learned about her a little bit when you were in school as well. If I'd gone by what I knew as a young person, and not a good thing, not necessarily very limited, I only knew her as a person who was both deaf and blind, right? I only knew her in terms of limitations, and maybe that's, you know, because that is uh, in, in a way, I mean, that's a very notable aspect, of course, to her life and existence. But that's not it. She's not the sum of life described in those two descriptions. So the reality is that she was about 14 years old. She met Mark Twain or Samuel Clemens, of course, the very famous American author. And um, he was a real blessing to her in her life. He made, uh, he made it possible for her to attend Radcliffe College. Did you know she did that? When she attended Radcliffe She graduated with her Bachelor of Arts in 1904, so just over 100 years ago. She learned how to read, get this, I feel so so feeble when I say that. She learned to read English and German and Latin and French, all in Braille, no less. I mean, very accomplished, tremendous not to be defined by limitations or disabilities, but here is a person of tremendous uh, possibility and capability. One occasion, he was reading to her, Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, was reading to her from a document, a short story he had written called Eve's Diary. And he's reading to her, and of course that means somebody's got to be there and help you know, her uh, to hear, as it were, the story. But no problem, that was arranged. When she looked back on that evening and really the summary of her interactions with Mark Twain, I I just want to read you her description. It's only one paragraph. I have to tell you, it's one of the most compelling paragraphs I think I've, I've read. She would later reflect, to one hampered and circumscribed as I am, it was a wonderful experience to have a friend like Mr. Clements. I recall many talks with him about human affairs. 
He never made me feel that my opinions were worthless. He knew that we do not think with eyes and ears and that our capacity for thought is not measured by five senses. He kept me always in mind when we talked. He treated me like a competent human being. That is why I loved him. It has been said that life has treated me harshly, and sometimes I have complained in my heart because many pleasures of human experience have been withheld from me. But when I recollect the treasure of friendship that has been bestowed upon me, I withdraw all charges against life. If much has been denied me, much, very much, has been given me. So long as the memory of certain beloved friends lives in my heart, I shall say that life is good. We began our words this morning in Bible class by saying that God could select Joseph and Mary irrespective of their circumstances in life. They had characteristics and qualities that matter. Did you just hear in the words of Helen Keller that it didn't matter about the fame of Mr. Twain or other things? She said, he made me feel like I was worth time. I appreciate Christianity because it says that every person is significant. It reminds us that relationships matter. When we come to the holidays, we appreciate being able to to be in the presence of those who mean so much to us. I think of Jesus taking time to interact with people from all backgrounds and let them know that while others may dismiss them or shunt them aside, he sees in them worth as an individual. I love Christianity because it says people are worth time. Now, I separate this from compassion Because compassion says there's a difficult circumstance and I'm going to sit over on that side of the train and put my arm around this grieving figure the way that Ella did to the woman who was there. But this one is different. This one says that we can find joy in doing the journey of life together with people. And there's no one who should be immediately considered as beneath our notice or not worthy of our time or We're not worthy of the effort. I'm sure that it was an effort to have to have somebody, you know, do the hand signing so that that, um, Helen Keller could understand what he was saying or to translate back. And you know what? She said he didn't seem like that was a burden and she loved him for it. In Acts chapter 2, when the thousands of persons obeyed the gospel on that Pentecost day, the Bible says that in the ensuing time period, They not only engaged in worship activities, which is fabulous, Acts 20 and verse 42. But if you look down farther, it also says that they were in each other's homes. They broke bread together. They did what we did just a minute ago next door. And we catch up with the people we know. We make feel welcome the people we're just getting to know. The table is big enough for everybody. Christianity says companionship matters. That in the interacting is joy with people who love the same God, follow the same Christ, or maybe you're contemplating that, and in the end are wanting to go home to the same glorious destination. The family of God is a special family, the best ever, because in it is this great God, our great brother and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, And it is filled with people who have been trained not only to benefit, but to extend, to make every person feel 
significant. I am grateful for you, for the church, and for my privilege of being a part of it. The kind of enjoyment and fellowship we've had over the last several days is exactly what we're talking about. And there's room for every person. Please don't let anybody ever convince you or try, you know, successfully convince you that Christianity is somehow a pox or a blight or a a harm. It is exactly the opposite. It promotes the best. It encourages the best. It opens the door to the best. And it asks us to grow to be the best. How can it not be the greatest blessing that humanity could ever experience? The only thing lacking would be that one of us might not be a part. My hope this afternoon is that every person in this room, even the ones maybe listening by extension, are members of the Lord's church and realize the privilege that that represents. If you're with us and you're not a member of the church, if you've not been baptized into Christ, then then I want to encourage you to reconsider this decision. You make the best decision ever if you say, I want to be baptized into Christ. And we're very happy to help you. And along the way, let's encourage one another to know this is exactly where we're intended to be, the right decision for the rest of our lives. May God bless us all as we try to walk in the steps of Jesus and celebrate the privilege of being a part of God's family. And if we can help you this afternoon to become a member, to live as a member, to walk as a member, to be encouraged as a member, we really want to do that and support each other. And all you have to do is tell us how. Won't you come to the front while we stand and while we sing?